Yesterday, I officiated at the funeral of a dear saint from our church, Richard Talladay. And last week, I attended this service for one of our members' grandmothers who passed away. And back in January, as I was preparing for my sabbatical, I attended one and officiated another funeral for parents of dear friends. And during our time away of sabbatical, I again attended the service of yet another friend's father and returned to officiate at another close friend's father as well. Six funerals in almost as many months. And as I was thinking about that this week and reflecting in this, on this psalm, it called to my mind the paradoxical wisdom of Ecclesiastes 7, where the Lord says, It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. It's God's way of saying you learn more at a funeral than you do at a feast. Because that's where we're all headed at some point. And if we're willing to take it to heart as the living, the lesson that we learn in the reality and the sadness that death brings can lead us to find refuge and joy in the one who is life. And that's the, really the lesson of this psalm before us this morning. Psalm 90 is entitled, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. And that makes it likely one of the oldest psalms in this book. And though we don't know for sure the occasion for this prayer, it fits the context of when Moses and the people of Israel were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years due to their, their rebellion and their sin against God for refusing to trust his promise and enter into the land that he had given to them. You can read about that back in Numbers chapter 14. And during that time, there were many more funerals than once a month. <laughs> there were probably several a day, maybe even hundreds a day, because God had said to Moses that none of those over the age of 20, of all the people of Israel, none of those over the age of 20 who had turned against him and would refuse to enter into the land would ever actually go in there. And so for 40 years, this whole generation was passing away in the wilderness. And as Moses watches and reflects on this whole generation of people whom God had brought out and delivered out of Egypt, passing away one by one in the dusty, barren wilderness, he prays this very humble but very honest prayer that takes to heart the, the brevity and the ephemeral nature of man in light of the eternal nature of God. And as a result, he ends up pleading the covenant promises of God to be present and to provide for his people. And so what are the living to lay at heart and to learn when we come to the house of mourning? What, can, what are the lessons that God has for us as we consider our own mortality? How can the sadness of face that death brings actually make our hearts glad? And Moses gives us some answer to those questions here in this prayer. 
He reminds us of the brevity of man in light of the eternity of God in verses 1 to 6. And then he laments the reason for death in God's judgment for our sin in verses 7 through 11. And last, he comes and claims the promises of God and his grace and provision for his people in verses 12 to 17. And that's how we're going to go through this psalm. Moses focuses first on the brevity of man in light of the eternity of God. He has much to say in this psalm. Moses, as we read through this, as Laura was reading it, you're probably going, Ooh, <laughs> that doesn't sound good. He has much to say that is somewhat negative and fairly sobering. A lot to say about the fleeting, fleeting, frail, and frustrating nature of life. But notice he doesn't start there. He begins and he ends on a great note of hope. He begins with God, who as we confessed earlier in the catechism question, is infinite. He is eternal. He is unchanging in every aspect of his being, in every part of his character, in everything that he does and this is where Moses starts he says Lord mighty father powerful sovereign you have been our dwelling place in all generations as Moses reflects on the the brevity of life as he leads and shepherds this great mass of people living in tents wandering through the desert dying in this barren wilderness he is reminded of where their true refuge lies, where their true dwelling place is, their real shelter, their ultimate security, their ultimate safety. It is in the sovereign, eternal, everlasting God. Their God, he says. Indeed, before any shelter or dwelling place on earth even existed, Moses said, God was there. Before he had put the mountains, the symbol of of stability and and security in their place. Before he had even created a a suitable habitat, a suitable dwelling place for, for his creatures on the earth for us to live in. Moses says, from infinity past to infinity future, God is and always will be. And he always has been and always will be the only true refuge, the only secure shelter for his people to dwell. And so this this fact of life here on earth being short and being uh, difficult reminds and leads Moses to proclaim, this is not our true home. (laughs) Lord, you are our dwelling place. And no matter how drastically our life's circumstances may change, no matter how uncertain or unstable your life may get, God is the greatest constant in life. And he is a secure shelter, a dwelling place for his people, not just now, but for every generation past and for every generation future. Though the mountains should be moved and fall into the heart of the sea, Another psalm reminds us, God is our refuge and strength, our ever-present help in trouble. Brothers and sisters, that should really fill us with hope. (laughs) It really should. For those who know and trust the eternal, everlasting God, there's no such thing as being homeless. There's no such thing as being without 
a place. You may live in a tent. You may be wandering in the wilderness of life. You may live in a palace in what seems like paradise right now. But as we'll see, neither of those situations are permanent. Neither of those go on for eternity. The only true safe and lasting home is found in God who holds all things in his hands. In him we live and move and have our being. And he doesn't just provide a secure place for his people to dwell. He says, you are our secure place. He is the secure place of our dwelling. He is the one that provides a sure and secure hope which Moses sets before himself and before us. But it's not only something that fills us with hope, it's also a humbling reality as, as Moses goes on to consider the brevity of man's life here in light of God's eternal nature. He says, You, O God, return man to dust and say, Return, O children of men. Moses is, is likely recalling the, the curse of sin given by God upon Adam and all his, his posterity for his sin in the garden in Genesis 3. Because of sin, God said, life would now be filled with toil and trouble and, f- and futility until death returns man to the ground from which he came. And God says, out of the ground you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. God created man from the dust of the earth, and then he breathed life into his soul. And that's why our bodies are dust. They are temporal. They do not last Listen, children here, young people, what makes you special, what makes you significant is not your body. (laughs) It's your soul. It's your soul before God. Our bodies are dust. Do not live your life for dust. Now, don't get me wrong. Our bodies are important to God. He created them, and they are a significant part of who we are, created in His image. And we are called to care for them as the temple of the Holy Spirit. But our earthly bodies are wasting away outwardly. And it will one day be laid in the ground to return to the dust from which it came. And that is what Moses is reminding himself of and and us of here. And that is what he is, that is his experience. That is our experience, isn't it? Our life in this world is fleeting compared to the eternal nature of God. We pass through this life, God, Moses says, like a watch in the night, like a dream that's gone in the morning. Generations come and generations go like the grass on our lawn that grows for a week and then we come on Saturday morning and it's gone. And another one starts growing up. To God... A thousand years is like a day that has passed. I mean, think about that. Just put, it kind of puts it in perspective, doesn't it? You know, sometimes we talk about dog years. You know, I, a year for us or a year for a dog is like seven human years. I think that's how it works. And so, you know, my dog Zoe is about my same age. And that's probably why we act so much alike. But to God, a year is like 365,000 years to us. Our lives, our 70 or 80 years are like, are like a 90-minute movie in God's economy. Young people, you've probably heard someone 
older than you say to you, you have your whole life ahead of you. And that obviously is very true. (laughs) You do. And that's a good thing. But what right now seems like such a long and distant journey in the big scheme of things, in God's economy, is like a flash. And we never know how quickly it will come to an end. But it will come to an end. And why is that? Why is life so fleeting in the face of God's eternal nature? Well, Moses goes on not only to speak of the brevity of, uh, of life in the context of God's humanity, but to speak of the reason for death, and that is the judgment of God for sin. He says in verse 7 and 8, We are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. Why do we die? Why, when we go to a funeral, do we recognize that something here is not right? Why do we have the sense that this is not how life is supposed to end? Why, when we consider or face our own death, does it instill in us a sense of fear, a sense of foreboding? Because death is the product and the result of sin. Now, that doesn't mean that every death directly results from some specific act of sin. But the reality and the, and the universality of death and the pain and the suffering associated with it is the just anger and the righteous wrath of God against the sin of those who, turn away, who have turned away from him. The wages of sin, we're told. What sin rightly earns and justly deserves from a holy God is death. And when God wants to to justify his righteous anger and wrath against sin, look what Moses says. He doesn't have to go and and look at at all the murderers and all the the, uh, corrupt um, leaders of the world. He doesn't have to go to some particularly evil period of time in in, in the history of our world. When he wants to justify his his righteous wrath against sin, what does he do? He looks in our hearts. (laughs) He says, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of our presence, in the light of your presence. Even the secret sins of your and my life, those things which we think are only known to us. Are brought to light before the presence of God. Nothing is hidden. He sees and he knows all, which means that none of us are innocent and none of us have excuse. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory, and as a result, suffer the just impact of sin and the decay and ultimately death of our bodies. And so when we consider the brevity of life, when we think about the, the 70 or maybe 80 years we have on this earth, if God is gracious. And how, as Moses says, they are filled with toil and trouble, and how they are soon gone with a great groan. What is usually our first instinct? To blame God. (laughs) To blame God. To find fault in Him. Indeed, many people will move from the reality of suffering and pain and death to the conclusion that there actually can't be a God. But really, the opposite is true. The fact that there is such a thing as right and wrong, that there is such a thing as good and evil, that there is sin and suffering, life and death, points to the reality that there is something, someone outside of us 
that is a standard by which we measure all those things and is the one before whom we are accountable for all those things. And particularly when we see unjust suffering, when we see uh, oppression and persecution of the innocent or the vulnerable, when we see violence against the weak, when we see greed and corruption by those in power or authority, everything in us cries out, that's not right. (laughs) That's not right. Why is that? Because God has written eternity on our hearts. He has revealed his truth to us in such a way that we know the difference. And if we have a just and good God, then he is right and good and just to judge and punish wrong. And the reality of death is one indication of that judgment. And so Moses laments the fact that we do not often consider the power of God's anger and have the proper fear of his wrath more deeply. For if we did, we would quickly acknowledge and accept our utter dependence on God and our utter need for his grace and mercy for our sin. And we would be quick to do what Moses does next. And that is he pleads God's covenant promises for that, that grace and that mercy to his people. What purpose does this consideration of God's eternity and the judgment of sin and death have for us? For Moses, it led to come again to the, to the everlasting living God who is our dwelling place and to acknowledge our utter need and dependence on him. And to look to him with confidence to his promises of grace and mercy in our lives. Notice Moses' prayer beginning in verse 12. He takes all that he said before and it's, it's now here are the lessons learned. Here is a, a theology for life, if you will, for how we, we deal with this reality of sin and death in light of God's eternity. And he turns there. And his prayer is corporate. He's not just praying for himself, but for all of God's people. Indeed, in every generation to come, he says, what does he pray for? Well, he prays six things, and I just want to run through them quickly, but they serve as a prayer for us as well as we seek to live our lives, however long they may be, journeying together through the wilderness of this world towards our dwelling place in God's presence. First, he says, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Lord, give us perspective. Help us to recognize our limitations. Help us to embrace our brevity and our frailty in order that our lives will not be guided by the transient things of this world. The passing passing away wisdom and ways of this world. But by the lasting and unchanging wisdom of God and his word. Moses said, Lord, help us to see things from your perspective. Fix our eyes on that which is, was et- which is eternal and not temporal. As you wake up in the morning, think about that day ahead as, as one check mark, if you will, in the, in the rather short tally that's probably the rest of your life. And allow that to drive you to God and ask Him to enable you to walk in that day according to His wisdom, 
to walk in that day according to his will. As you rush to get your children breakfast and off to school, as you, as you head into that important meeting that you are not really prepared for, as you get ready to meet with a friend who's going through a, a struggle, or as you try to decide whether to even get up this morning and go to church to worship, Lord, teach us to number our days that we might not fritter them away, that we might not waste them pursuing that which is moth and rust, that which moth and rust will destroy, but lead us to live our lives according to your wisdom and your way. Second, he cries out for the Lord to have pity and compassion. Return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants? Even with God as our dwelling place, there are times when it seems he has withdrawn his presence from us. There are times where, where his hand of discipline is heavy upon us and, or, or we may be going through a season of, of dryness in our journey. And our only hope is to cry out to him, O Lord, Return. How long? My soul waits for you. Show your mercy. And we can trust that the God who returns sinners to dust is also the God who returns to sinners in mercy and compassion. So teach us to number our days. Return and have pity on your servants. Third, he prays for God to satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad. That word speaks to, to God's covenant love, his promised faithfulness and mercy to his people. And when we know that steadfast love, when we recognize the goodness of God in his mercy to us, we begin to realize that nothing else in this world, nothing else in this life will truly ultimately satisfy our desires. Nothing will make us truly happy. We long to be known and loved and accepted and treasured. And the only, the steadfast love of the Lord, which never ceases, can fill that void. And so we come, Lord, satisfy us in the morning with your love. Day in and day out. And fourthly, Lord, redeem the days of our affliction. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. Again, the recognition here that God's sovereign purposes extend even over the pain and suffering of life is important and clear. But the plea to God's goodness to redeem those times, to bring joy from the tears, to turn the pain into pleasure. This is not some kind of bargaining with God. Moses is not saying here, Lord, okay, we've been through so much and we've had so many trials and tribulations that now you owe us. Time to pay back. That's not what he's saying. He is again appealing to God's love for his, for his, and his care and his promises to his children. And it's a recognition that God is the one who brings beauty out of the ashes. He is the one who, who can turn mourning into gladness. He is the one who can take the ruins and rebuild them into something beautiful and lasting. And we rightly call on him to, to bring us, Lord, through the dark valley. Lead us into the, to, beside the still waters and into the green pastures. Make us glad, O oh God. 
And fifthly, reveal yourself to us as your children. Show us your work, O Lord. Open our eyes to see your hand of providence at work and your glory manifested in the lives of your people. Imagine if this is is our daily prayer, not only for ourselves, but for, for, for God's church, for God's people. Show us your work, O Lord. Open our eyes to see your hand. The way our perception, the way our approach to life each day would change. We would see things in people. We would see things in events. We would see things in the world around us in ways that, that we are just blind to when we walk around with our noses in our phones and, and the cares and concerns pressing down on us all day. Lord, show us your work and reveal your glory to us. And lastly, give us favor, O God, and establish our work. (laughs) Establish the work of our hands. Take our lives, O Lord, and, and use them for your purpose and your pleasure. Only you know the number of our days. And so, Lord, take what we do in those, in that fleeting brief moment and use it for your glory the everlasting God of all creation has deigned to use you and me and us as his people as an instrument of his work as a display of his glory as those who are walking alongside to establish his kingdom here on earth so every diaper you change Every contract you sign, every program that you code, every case that you argue, every class that you teach, every book that you read, every word that you speak, whatever you do is an opportunity for the Lord to work and to establish the work of your hands in you and through you for His purposes. And so, Moses gives us a great pattern for how we are to pray and how we are to plead God's promises in light of the the brevity of life and our, our fleeting, frail time here on earth and the reality of sin and and God's judgment and wrath around us. And friends, the reality is that this everlasting God The one in whom eternity dwells. Who is from infinity past to infinity future. Who is unchanging and eternal. This one has come down and dwelt with us in the person of his son Jesus Christ. He has come and he has fulfilled all his promises to be our God and to to redeem us as his people, to pour out his grace and his mercy upon us through the one who was with God in the beginning and is God, who created all things and who is life and light to us today. And because of him, though the Effects of sin and judgment of God are still seen in the realities of of the struggles and the pains of life and the reality of death in this life. Because of him, that anger and that wrath for our sin has been removed. 
And we now stand and dwell in the presence of God as those who are free, are forgiven, are loved and welcome and dwell in Him even as He now dwells in us. And so we can pray this prayer now with an even greater confidence than than Moses could pray. We can say, O Lord Jesus, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And now you have come down to us. And in you we live and move and have our being. And so over sabbatical, I had a lot of time to reflect, (laughs) to think about God's work in the past, to think about what God is doing even now in the in, in the present and to what he will do in the future. And one of the things that I was impressed with is how quickly life passes. <laughs> and yet, our God is faithful. And in him we have a dwelling place and he is at work in us and through us in his son Jesus Christ to do what he would do in the time that he's given us here on earth. And so let us pray to him with confidence and with great joy that he would be faithful and true to his promises. Let's pray together. Father, you are the everlasting God. You are, as we will sing in a moment, our help in ages past and our hope for years to come. Our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home. And Lord Jesus, you came and dwelt among us that we might now enter in freely, forgiven, fully justified, standing in your righteousness before our good and gracious Father. And Lord, we pray now as we continue to journey through this barren wilderness of life, in many ways experiencing the toil and the troubles that are part of it. But we do it, Lord, as those who have been welcomed, who have been redeemed from our sin, and who have been ushered in and are being ushered in to the great promised land of your presence. And so, Lord, be with us. Pour out your mercy. Teach us to number our days. Make us glad. Show us your power and establish the work of our hands that you might Get all the glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.